Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. You have a right to an attorney prior to or during any question. You can't afford one. The court will point one for you. Do you understand your rights? When the wolf is at your door, you run in zone, that's for sure. You already know it's all about you. Cut you down. This episode of Real Life, Real Crime, the podcast may contain descriptions of acts of violence or that of a sexual nature and should be for people that are 18 years or older. Heed my warning, people. I do not get the facts of these cases off of the internet or from some television show. The facts I'm retelling you were presented to me by the victims of the crimes or the perpetrators who committed the crimes against the victims. My descriptions of the crime scenes, what I saw with my own two eyes. If you're going to get offended, please turn this podcast off now. Thank you. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Real Life, Real Crime, the podcast. As always, I'm your host, Woody Overton. And y'all stay tuned at the end of the show for some real life, real crime announcements and swim someone who is in me, a podcast by Woody Overton announcements. So when I left you last, Gregory C. Brown was on trial for his life. Okay. And this happened in East Baton Rouge Parish, but that's because that's where the bodies of William and Ann Gay were found, burned up in the car, and they both had been shot numerous times. Uh, The trial, we'll say it was unique, and there were several reasons why. Uh, One of the reasons, first of all, let me back up. You don't just get to a death penalty trial, right? I mean, after the arrest, of course, there is the grand jury, and they have to return the indictments for first-degree murder. Then the district attorney has to decide that they are going to proceed for the charges of first-degree murder and not take that off the table because that's where the death penalty comes in, all right? And they decided not to do that. I mean, they they could have dropped it to second-degree murder, 
They went for first-degree murder. They got first-degree murder. So now it's a death penalty. Well, not penalty. It's a yeah, well, it's a death penalty trial. But she's got he's got to get convicted first, right? It's two stages to a death penalty trial. If you get the conviction, that's one thing. If you get, then you come back for the guilt phase. If you're found guilty, and the same jurors get to listen to all the mitigating circumstances, um, in which the prosecution believes that you should be the guilty person should be put to death. So the first thing that happened, y'all, and it was a lot. And, and again, you're going to have all these motions to suppress and these hearings and all this stuff. They, you know, but what I didn't tell you was uh, what all happened, how we re- he really got arrested and how, um, what he said to police and everything like that. And all this comes up in the trial. So, but he did get arrested in Baton Rouge. When I told you they hit that house, well, they hit it and they hit it hard. They used tear gas uh, and everything else in their arsenals and to basically smoke them out of the residence. And they took them into custody and they brought them in for questioning. Now, when you get hit with the tear gas, it sucks. There's no doubt about it. But everybody, and even the SWAT team that goes in with gas mask on, you, it still burns your skin and stuff like that. The They did this, uh, and they went in, and they got Brown, right? Well, before, before you interview him back at the detective's office, you you got to make sure he's not under the influence still of the tear gas, which is it doesn't take that long, y'all, thirty or forty five minutes, and it'll get off of you. And you got to make you want to make sure he's sober and not high. The um, you know, you just you want it to be right because you know this is a death penalty case. Remember, William and Gay were not only kidnapped from their home where they were enjoying cocktails and in. Miss Ann was preparing a roast for dinner. You know, they were in the 60s, right? And Mr. William was retired, and Miss Ann was a, had been a nurse. Um, but they were brutally, brutally murdered and add insult to injury. They were set on fire. So the once they get him, and like I said, they rolled in in force and used everything known to man to get him, uh, and they did. And they bring him in and they go to question him. And of course, he had been exposed to the tear gas during the fourth century of the house. And um, he goes in and even before he, he, he gave a confession, y'all, or, or he admitted to his part or made his statements, he never really confessed that you know this as a detective you got to make sure whatever you get so it can be admitted into evidence is made freely and voluntarily and not under the influence of fear or duress or intimidation or menace or threats or promises i mean that's you're not telling them oh you're getting the death penalty or we're going to beat the shit out of you or you know I will promise you, you'll get off if you just tell her this or whatever. The, um, yeah, and naturally, you got to advise them of the Miranda rights. So let's go back to the date of 
after he was arrested, they had the first hearing on a motion to suppress all his statements, and that was on June 13th of 2000. And at this hearing, Detective Keith Bates testified that he was there when they when they kicked the door and used the tear gas on Osborne Street, uh, where and and they got him. They went in and and of course he's blinded and everything else he can't see and he's got snot running out of his nose and they bring him out. Um, and as he was being brought out, you know he obviously still had some effects of the gases. Uh, um, and the detective says, I, I know he did because I still had a little bit on me myself. But when the detective was asked specifically about the effects of the gas used to, to make the force entry on the residence from where he was arrested, um, Detective Bates confirmed that by the time Brown arrived downtown, some 30 minutes later, he was in good condition. And the Brown was... Uh, apprehended at approximately 11.55 p.m., and his interview with T- Detective Bates didn't start until nearly 2 a.m., so several hours, y'all, by which time he, Detective Bates tes- is testifying no effects of the gas could be detected. Detective Bates indicated that any residual effects that he had personally experienced from the exposure to the gas had passed by the time he began the interview. Detective Bates also testified that he assessed Brown before question and believed that Brown did not appear to be under the influence of any drugs or alcohol and that he was not physically ill or injured. Then Bates says that Brown gave an oral statement once in, once in custody and that he asked Detective Harold Williams to witness Brown's interrogation as a second set of ears. Y'all, that's common. Uh, what wasn't so common back then as as interview rooms with uh, video cameras. We didn't have one, you know. So Detective Bates testified he advised uh, Brown of his Miranda rights in the presence of Detective Williams, and Detective Bates said that uh, Brown appeared mentally alert and able to understand, and he voluntarily waived his rights, so he wants to talk, right? After administering rights, Detective Bates asked Brown if he was willing to discuss the matter under investigation without an attorney presence. And you know what Brown said? Yeah, Keith Bates, because I didn't kill any gays. I w- I'll be willing to talk to you. And now no recording device was used yet, y'all. And Detective Bates took Brown's oral statement of the events that happened in Clinton on October 4, 1998. Um once they completed the interview, Brown took a break to use the restroom and eat, and upon his return, Detective Bates asked him if he was ready to give a tape statement of the matters they had just discussed. Well, according to Bates, Detective Bates at this time, Brown was like, mm, fuck that. You know, I think it's in my best interest not to tape, and I prefer to speak to an attorney. So what did they do? You shut it down, right? And then you got this case on evidence anyway. So Detective Bates honored Brown's uh, invocation of his right to counsel, and at that point, the interview was terminated. Detective Harold Williams also testified at this motion to suppress y'all and confirmed that the defendant was not ill from the gas or any of the drugs um, at the time of the interview. And Detective Williams had also observed uh, uh, Brown freely waived his rights. 
So at the conclusion of this, this motion to suppress here in the trial court denied Brown's motion to suppress the, his custodial statement. And they said, we find that uh, the denial of Brown's motion to suppress was proper as he has failed to demonstrate that his statement was made under the influence of fear, duress, intimidation, menace, threats, inducements, or promises. And it's clear from the testimony of both officers that any ill effects of the gas used to uh, entry in order to apprehend Brown had worn off by the time that the interrogation had begun. And also the defendant's claim over having been under the influence is undermined by the him uh, saying he, you know, he wanted an attorney once Detective Bates suggested they should record a statement. So, all right, let's move along. There's a lot, a lot more, y'all, a lot of these motions, presses, and blah, blah, blah. But I want to really want to kind of get to the trial and begin to focus on what happened. Um, one of the main things is um, the photo lineup I told y'all that they showed Mr. Ike in the hotel. I mean, the hotel in the hospital was actually um, showed to him by uh, Captain Arkell Merritt. Now, let me tell you about Arkell Merritt, okay? And Eddie Stewart, uh, I know both of these guys well, who was the chief of police at the time. Arkell Merritt, the his kids and I went to school together, and I just saw his daughter and son-in-law like last Friday evening. The, uh, they still live in Clinton. Mr. Arkell had either worked for the sheriff's office or PD. At one point, he worked for my grandfather as an investigator in the district attorney's office. And I've known him since I was a baby boy. He, he and my parents were very good friends. And, and I even got in trouble, or let's say swim, got in trouble on their 18th birthday. And I'll tell that story on swim the uh the podcast by Woody Overton is coming up. Mr. Arkell, the best in the business, okay? Eddie Stewart, long-time law enforcement, whatever position, whether it's chief of police or working for the sheriff's office, whatever, doesn't matter. Um, the problem with it was, y'all, The I told y'all how the computer generates and picks out five other people that look like the defendant. Well, this defendant only had one eye. So, yeah, it's hard to get a, a six-pack or a photo lineup that represents people that, like him, that only have one eye. Um, so let's go back to it. On the Ike Roberts, it, who was the one I told you was beating with the claw hammer and before he stumbled in his house, and then his mother was beaten, and they were taken to the ambulance, into the hospital and ambulance together. On October 4th, 1998, he gave the police that detailed description of his attacker immediately following his attack. This before they showed him the photo lineup. And he reported to the police that his assailant was a stocky black male with tracheotomy scar and a missing eye. Now, on October 5th, the next day, 1998, Eddie Stewart, the chief of police in Clinton, he's a great guy. And Captain Arkell Merritt went to visit Roberts in the hospital, and they showed him that six-person photo lineup containing the uh, the defendant's picture. Now, Chief Stewart and Captain Merritt testified at the motion hearing. This is another one, y'all. They want they want this thrown out, and they also testified about it at the trial. 
that um, Mr. Ike Roberts selected to defend those photo from the lineup very quickly and without hesitation. In fact, Ike Roberts testified that he has good eyesight and he attained a good, clear look at the defendant during the late afternoon attack, and he was within arm reach of the defendant's face for a period of minutes. Right? And in fact, Roberts testified at trial. They said, did you make any notations about any of these individuals? And he said, yes, ma'am. And he said, what, what was that, please? He said, well, I tried to recognize at the time some of the clothing and the condition, but one of them didn't have on a shirt. That was Mr. Brown, right, the, the, the one who really did the damage with the claw hammer. He says, he had a shirt stuck in his back pocket, and I noticed he had several scars, and he was missing his right eye. The world has become a smaller place, and people are traveling more freely between countries than ever before. And companies are doing more business outside of their home countries than ever before. The geniuses at Rosetta Stone saw this trend beginning to develop years ago and have dedicated decades toward researching and refining the best and most efficient way to teach someone a new language. Rosetta Stone has been one of our most loyal sponsors here at Real Life Real Crime and The Daily Show, and that's because many of you out there have trusted Rosetta Stone to prepare you for everything from a family reunion to a once-in-a-lifetime trip to a business trip in a faraway country. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program in the galaxy. Rosetta Stone's been there for us with a great product at a great price. Rosetta Stone is a trusted expert in language learning for 30 years with millions of users. Rosetta Stone's intuitive process helps you pick up a new language naturally so you retain what you learn, and their true accent speech recognition feature is like having a personal trainer. So don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Real Life Real Crime and The Daily Show listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Au revoir. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And the question comes from the prosecutor says, what type of scars did he have on his body? And uh, Mr. Ike says... He had a track scar right here in his throat from a tracheotomy, and he has pretty good size scar across his midsection here. And the prosecutor says, okay, and he was missing his right eye entirely. And Mr. Ike says, yes, ma'am. And the prosecutor says, okay, what was his hair like that day? And Ike, Mr. Ike answers, it, braids or pigtails or whatever long, and he had some type of sweatband headband type of deal around his head and roberts promptly relayed his description of the brown to the police after the attack and then y'all were talking about when he's dying basically and waiting on the ambulance and roberts recalled that the day after the attack he made the positive id of the defendant 
by the photo lineup with no hesitation, stating, I know I don't have the wrong man. Now, further, when viewing the photographic lineup itself, it's clear that the state tried to fill in subjects with vision problems. Now, you can imagine that'd be a little bit harder, right? Because that computer program picks people from driver's license, et cetera. So I don't know how many people there are on our state that have a, a bad eye like uh, Brown did, but they did their best. And, and in fact, um, the, the them trying to fill in the, the subjects with vision problems, one subject's left eye is not Brown's, but one of the other ones in the six-pack. One subject's left eye is clouded white and appears to be blind, and another appeared to have a lazy eye, while one of the photographs depicts a man with no apparent eye uh, difficulties, and the two remaining subjects appear to be droopy-eyed as though under the influence of drugs and alcohol. But in addition, all the other subjects have comparable hairstyles, skin tone, and facial hair to defend it. Now, remember, the computer picks this out. People don't pick this out, and they get it. I'm telling you, I've, I've done them, and they've been so freaking close that I knew who the bad guy was, and I couldn't pick them out. But this one, I guess, would have been a little bit different. So the the court ruled that the photo, photo lineup was fair, and the state provided uh, filling subjects with similar hair, skin tone, and some distinguishing eye feature that would be reasonably comparable to that of, of Brown's missing eye. So, you know, the court goes on to say, look, look, they did, basically they did their best. And uh, in, in this case, the Brown fails to demonstrate that Ike Roberts misidentified him. And as the record confirms that Roberts gave a detailed description of his attacker that included distinguishing features in addition to Brown's missing eye and what he, Mr. Ike was unwavering in his positive identification. And so they said, based on the totality of the circumstances, no substantial likelihood of misidentification was present, and the trial court didn't find anything wrong with it, y'all. I'm going to skip around a little bit, but let's go to part of the trial, right? So the jury's seated, and they go through voir dire, and they do the opening statements and everything else, and we'll come to the testimony of Detective Keith Bates, Okay. And Bates, again, was the first one who interviewed Brown, uh, which was taken on December 23rd, 1998. And uh, Brown admitted that he and his companions were in Clinton, my hometown, on October 4th, 1998, for the purpose of robbing a drug dealer known as Little Man. Uh, That's what I told you all about before, right? Now, he admitted to it, that part. Um, but a 35-minute crime spree ensued during which time the defendant's, being Brown's, van was completely disabled in the automatic, uh, the crash I told you about where he, he uh, basically jumped on top of, the, of that, that Camry. Um, now, the state theorized that Brown now, because he didn't have a, a ride, transportation, that he kidnapped the gays and forced them to drive him back to Baton Rouge in their red Ford Escort. And the state further goes on and says that once Brown had been transported to Baton Rouge, he shot William and Ann Gay several times and then burned their bodies and the car to destroy evidence. Now, can you imagine being married the 40-plus years, these wonderful people where you work every day hard of your life, and this, this is how it ends. Brown 
wanted to be his own lawyer. That was a big stink. His family had paid $5,000 for a guy named Stephen Young to represent him. And then, then Brown's like, fuck that. I, I'm, I can be the best attorney in the world. And I know more about the law than these people. And when he's, he's fighting to have this done before the trial, the judge is like, well, what's your highest level of education? He said, eighth grade. And he said, but I can read and write better than most people who graduated, and I've been studying the law. And the judge is like, mm, I guess you mean prison law, basically. I'm summarizing for y'all. He's like, yeah, yeah, I've been working on my own cases, and I know the law. So this was a real shit show. You don't want someone to uh, defend themselves in a, in a, mur- a, a death penalty case because you know it's going to get brought up on appeal. But they, they ended up having to let him do it. And his whole thing was that uh, there was no evidence that tied him to the gay house, right? Uh, being uh, William and Ann gay. Um, but the prosecution put on circumstantial evidence, uh, uh, and that was sufficient to prove that he committed first degree murder and excluded any reasonable hypotheses of his innocence, right? And the state's strongest evidence came in the form of the test performed on the telephone cord. Remember I told you all about that, that that bound Ann Gay's hands uh, and and that was near the body of William Gay. That that was the cord gathered from the vehicle that he burned them up in, their own vehicle. And it was compared to the telephone cord seized from a garbage can at Brown's house uh, and to a telephone head handset from which the cord appeared to be torn away, which was found inside the residence. Now, they tested it for including fiber, uh, polymer, and metallurgy, how are you say it, metallurgical testing uh, by all the experts at the Louisiana State Police Crime Lab and three experts from the FBI. And afterward, the experts agreed that all the cords in this case were consistent with coming from the same source, which is going to be the uh, what Brown used when he ripped out the phone, is my belief. So now Brown gets up and cross-examined each one of the state's forensic experts who test the cords and asked them if they could testify to a scientific certainty that all the cord evidence originated as one continuous piece of cord, but none of them, but none of them would take the bite on that because they couldn't say, you know, without a doubt, right? But it's, it's y'all, it's not, you don't have to do it without a doubt on that part. You're building a story as a prosecution and, and the cops and the experts, and you put it all together, this is where they, and this is where they get him, right? So, Despite the inability of the state's experts to testify to scientific certainty that all the cords collected in association with this case originated as one continuous piece, the jury was still presented with evidence sufficient to prove the defendant was guilty of two counts of first-degree murder. And the jury heard from several Baton Rouge police officers who testified that on October 6, 1998, the date they arrived at the Fry Street address to execute the search warrant that they observed the defendant's dad and the Papa Lock employee trying to gain access to that Chevrolet Camaro 
that was parked behind the house I told you all about. And upon executing the warrant and entering the house, officers noted that all the furniture had been moved and that a thorough cleaning had taken place with mops and brooms still remaining. And during his cross-examination of Detective Bates and during closing arguments, uh, um, remember, this is this is Brown. This is the idiot. They're doing this themselves. Uh, Brown said that he did not attack Ike Roberts. Okay? Get the fuck out of here. Right? And, and, and everybody in the world knows you did. So he's... Brown admitted to being inside Miss Myrtle Roberts' house, but he denied throwing her to the floor. Now, you remember I told you about her? And he he break, kicks in the door, knocks her to the floor, and breaks her, her wrist. And he also denied kidnapping and killing William and Ann Gray. And he, in fact, he said that after he left Miss Myrtle's, Roberts' house, he took a shortcut through a field to Plank Road where he hitchhiked and paid a white male $2,000 to drive into Baton Rouge. Now, let me tell you something. If you got two fucking thousand dollars, why are you murdering these people over nothing? Okay? Why are you going to Clinton to rob a dope dealer, right? So I'm calling bullshit on that. Um, so even, even though he... He made that statement. He was unable to produce a witness who could testify. But in support of his alibi, Brown stated in his closing argument the state was unable to produce a witness who could testify to seeing him at the gay's residence and where they were alleged to have been kidnapped from, right? And Brown says that in comparison to the quantity of blood evidence left both inside and outside of Miss Myrtle Roberts' house, that none of his blood was ever found inside the gay's residence, right? Well, okay, but you're right next door. And his fingerprints, he said his fingerprints were not recovered on the gay's patio or inside their home. Well, hell, y'all, he didn't have to go inside a home. He could have kidnapped him from the porch. Remember the, the, the pot roast is still burning and, and the drinks are knocked over? I mean, he was probably right on that. Um, he further insisted the state failed to meet the burden of proof as none of the state's witnesses testified to having seen him riding in the car with the gays during the time in uh, which he, he was alleged to kidnap them. Well, okay. The jury also got to hear testimony from Mr. Ike Roberts in support of the state's case against Brown. And Mr. Roberts said he identified Brown as his attacker on the day of the incident and again during the trial. Brown, now, can you fucking imagine this? Brown gets to, to interrogate Mr. Ike on the stand, right? So Brown attempted to undermine Robert's testimony by pointing out inconsistencies between uh, Mr. Mr. Ike's re- recollection of his trach and abdominal scar and the absence of these in the police reports, right? Well, in response to Brown's impeachment attempts, the state came back uh, with testimony from Gina Panetta, the state's expert um, from Relygene, which she was established that the DNA recovered from a bloody fingerprint on the driver's side door of Myrtle Roberts' vehicles belonged to both Brown and Ike Roberts. Remember, y'all, the, he tried to get into the vehicle and it was locked. 
Then the state puts up Alejandro Varjas, which is one of the state's experts in serology, and they testified that the commingled blood in the fingerprint suggested that Robert's blood had been transferred onto the defendant's hand during the attack. Well, guess what? He beat him nearly to death. He caved in his skull. He broke his arms. He permanently damaged his left wrist for life. And you do that with a claw hammer, you're going to get blowback. You're going to get blood transfer on you, right? And then further, Carol Richard, Ms. Carol, uh, I'm sorry, Richard, an expert in latent fingerprint analysis, testified that the fingerprint left on the door matched Brown's left finger, left ring fingerprint, period. And in addition to the smears of blood on the door frame, doorknob, and three drops of blood inside Ms. Myrtle Roberts' house, were all found to match Brown's genetic profile. Get away from that one, bitch. Finally, a smear of blood matching Brown's genetic profile was found on the telephone handset recovered from the, the Frey Street house in Baton Rouge, y'all. And the state suggested that the cord retrieved from the burning vehicle containing the bodies of William and Ann Gay was ripped from this handset. And I believe they have it a thousand percent correct. Um, real quick, Brown tried to say that his strongest uh, hypotheses of innocence was focused on the blood stain found on the door frame at the gay's house. He said DNA testing revealed that the blood sample did not belong to him, Ann Gay or William Gay, Ike Roberts or Murder Roberts. And the state, uh, came back and tried to explain the stain on the gay store frame as unrelated to the murders, which it probably was, y'all, because Alex, that Alejandro Varas, or, or Barras that I told you about, the crime scene technician who lifted the blood sample from the gay door frame, testified that it was visually different from the other blood stains he collected in connection with the case as it was darker brown, which means, y'all, it was dry blood and had been there for some time. So, I mean, it's, it's just rolling on. And so, y'all, remember, they're putting all this puzzle together. And in this instance, you know, the court says the jury was presented with extensive circumstantial evidence of the defendant's guilt. And although that, that blood stain present at the gay's residence did not match Brown's genetic profile, the jury was able to accept the state's explanation and discount the blood on the guy gay's uh, door frame as unrelated to the to their murders. Furthermore, the jury made a credibility determination and rejected Brown's alibi as false because he was full of shit and he never was able to produce anyone that drove him to Baton Rouge for two thousand dollars. And so all the other evidence presented supported and corroborated the state's theory that Brown kidnapped and killed the gays because he needed the transportation back to Baton Rouge following his Clinton crime spree. And the jury all uh, took in, again, took into consideration things like the testimony of Mr. Ike Roberts and the fingerprint on Miss Myrtle Roberts' truck and the presence of Brown's blood in Miss Myrtle Roberts' home. Remember, he said, oh, I didn't even knock her down. And the telephone cord, which is key, had, uh, which appeared to have originated from the same source. And they just didn't believe him. They thought Brown was full of shit. And, uh, and they rejected his unconvincing uh, 
statements that he had left Feliciana Drive without doing any more damage, right? So the, uh, they also, uh, Brown was identified as being present at two adjacent houses on, on that street just before the, the, the uh, gays in, in a third house were kidnapped and killed. Uh, there you have it. Hey, let me let me take y'all back real quick. I just found this, and I think it's important that you get to hear it. So remember, Brown's like, mm, I, I want to be um, fire my attorneys. I want to do it by myself. Even though, y'all, when they do this, the court still appoints you attorneys to assist you, right? So this is the actual question of that. So, um, you know, basically the judge is like, look, you don't know the rules of evidence and procedure, and if you get up here and – you're looking like a, she didn't say dumbass, but basically you're looking like a dumbass, then I'm not going to cut you any slack. And uh, so the court says, if you don't know how to properly ask the question, then the question is not going to get asked. Brown says, right. And the court says, do you have any legal training? And Brown says, yes, I've been in legal training for the last two years or something. And the court says, you're talking about research in prison? And Brown says, yeah. And the court says, what type of formal education do you have? And how far did you go in school? Brown says, the eighth grade was the last grade I finished. And the court says, well, obviously you can read and write. And the defense says, yes, sir, better than most that graduate. And the court says, well, you understand it's pretty high stakes, right? And Brown says, yeah, it's my life. That's why I'm not fixing to sit here and let Mr. Hansworth play with my life by steadily letting the state parade witnesses up here with lies. And the judge says, all right, you understand that this is a death penalty case. Your life is on the line. You understand we have two highly qualified attorneys that have been appointed to represent you. Do you understand that? Brown says, I understand. And the court says, you also understand that not just any attorney can be appointed to represent you. Even some attorney, uh, basically all you have to be to represent somebody death penalty case, you have to be certified. And that's what he tells us. said, the, you know, you have to be certified to handle a death penalty case. And Brown says, I understand that too, Your Honor. And the court says, but, but you think you're qualified? He's, and Brown says, yep, I'm qualified for my case. I might, might not be qualified for other defense cases, but my case, I'm qualified for. I've been on my case more than any attorney could ever spend time on. Well, I guess you have, motherfucker, because you've been locked up. And the court says, all right, the court will allow you to act as, as co-counsel and cross-examine the witness, y'all. And that's, I just, I hate that. I hate that for Mr. Ike, for, uh, but all accounts, he absolutely just, I mean, you know what? One thing that doesn't change is the truth, even though you've been beaten nearly to death. Um, and him cross-examining the, the, the state's experts. Well, guess what? Those ladies and gentlemen have been doing this forever, and they're not going to get up there to lie, uh, um, you know, about something that they know could come back and bite them. Guess what? They didn't have to lie. They told what they believed, and they let the— uh, jury figure it out for themselves. Now I'm gonna tell you talk about one guy that that actually testified, who's a dear friend of mine, Pat Lane. He was at the time he was the state's firearm and fingerprint expert. And listen, y'all, he worked 
every major case you've ever heard me talk about on Real Life Real Crime. The dude is a freaking genius. So, um, let's go back to it. Brown only cross-examined Mr. Ike Roberts and Detective Keith Bates and Sergeant Dennis Moran's final appearance on the stand. In addition, he participated in the cross-examination of Pat Lane, who I just told you about. I would love to have seen that. I bet Pat tore his ass up. Because remember, all the big cases I had that went to trial, Pat had to come testify in them, right? And he also testified, I mean, uh, examined a doctor, Michael Smith, who is an FBI expert in metrology, and Miss Gina uh, Panada, the state's DNA expert from Real Hygiene, and um, you know, it's just stupid. The, 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 there were many other witnesses who were cross-examined and, or, or were dismissed without defense questioning, but meaning Brown. So Brown's role was as a partial participant or co-counsel. And you know what? He fucked himself. And I'm going to try to end this for you. I just want you to hear it. the... So, look, let's just go to it. The, uh, well, you know, I got to go back one more thing on Mr. Ike Roberts. Y'all, when the uh, Brown was at a bench conference with uh, about Mr. Ike Roberts testifying, he wanted the, uh, the original 911 tape thrown out. And the state won that because Mr. Roberts didn't make Mr. Ike didn't make that call. His wife did. Right. And. Anyways, and the court said about that side conference, here we are. Not that it's unexpected, but I've told him he has to go by the same rules as everybody else. And the reason I called y'all up here, though, is you're sitting at the table with him. Y'all are still his attorneys, and you have to assist him as you can. I would assume that means helping him ask the right questions. So there you go. The, uh, let's go on to it. I'm going to sum it up for you. He's guilty as fuck, right? The jury uh, retires. They come back, and it didn't take him long, y'all. And he is guilty of first-degree murder. Now, real quick, because it's very, very important. Now, what happens? The the guilt phase. The guilt phase is over with now, meaning that they found him guilty of first-degree murder. The uh, the Death penalty phase starts, right? Now the prosecution gets to put in all the shit that the jury hadn't heard about before. And listen, this dude had been an asshole from the time he was a kid, all right? Uh, the, I'll skip over his part where naturally they, you know, they're going to bring in uh, – um, Doctors who say he's got brain damage and he can't. Every fucking case I've ever told y'all about a death penalty case, they do the same thing, like I did in Christie O'Prize and in, in the death penalty phase one through ten. They bring in these psychologists, whatever, and try to say, well, he's borderline. Their words, y'all, not mine. I'm not saying they're saying borderline mental retardation. I I know that's not fucking politically correct, but that's the legal term. Um, but he wasn't. Obviously, this dude was pretty smart, right? And and so that you know, the the prosecution bounces that back, et cetera. And Brown says you know, that he uh, has serious brain injury, and uh, you know he can't. 
it, to put him to death would be cruel and unusual punishment and all that. Well, guess what? Didn't matter, right? And they uh, again, they're talking about retardation here. I don't use that word, mentally handicapped, whatever you want to say it. They talk about his IQ tests and all that. Um, and and trying to get something in there to have the jury have sympathy on him and so they won't come back with a vote of the death penalty, all right? And including emotional stress and learning disabilities and mental illness and personality disorder, whatever. So let's get to the part where the prosecution gets to start laying out the real dirt on this asshole. And it starts with, why do you think he lost his eye? Well, guess what? He got shot in the eye. I think it was two years before he did this. Uh, uh, and he was trying to rob someone, okay? And now also, the, uh, like the, and again, they're saying mental retardation, whatever, what do you want to call it? But this is the uh, court's words. They were like, mm, I'm pretty sure if you had that uh, severe mental issue that you wouldn't be able to stay on on the run and elude the cops for 82 days, right? The, guess what? Back to his education. Yeah, well, you know why he stopped in eighth grade education? Because he got arrested and had to serve time in the Louisiana Department of Corrections as a juvenile. Now, and even when he was in there, they got to go to school, y'all. But this says, Brown has no history requiring special education classes. And the, uh, you know, the, the the mental handicap stuff, he acted as his own trial counsel and cross-examined witness during the guilt phase of his, the trial, which we're in. Uh, I mean, you know, he he cross-examined Mr. Ike Roberts and, and was able to expose a mission in, you know, some of Mr. Roberts' statements. And he was even able to get Mr. Roberts to say that he was unaware if the attacker with the hammer was left or right-handed. So, I mean, look, he's not, he's not a dummy, right? The, I mean, it's just not. And, and he goes on and, and cross-examines all these expert witnesses. So that, you know what? He, he's really fucking himself. And that, uh, <laughs> because he's, he actually showed that he's pretty intelligent and he had not been such a shithead all his life that, you know, he probably could have done something himself. But he chose the dark path. So... Uh, Back to the Department of Corrections, you know, again, he had no history of special education classes for slow learners. And um, but look, let's go back to his criminal history. On May 11, 1985, Brown was charged with misdemeanor theft by shoplifting, for which he was later counseled and mourned, right, as juveniles. On December 29, 1986, he's, he's arrested again and charged with six counts of simple burglary. He pled guilty to one count on August 3rd, 1987, and was sentenced to three years in the Department of Corrections. All right? Great. He gets out. On April 10th, 1987, he gets out, and guess what? He gets arrested again. This time, purse snatching. Right? Come on, man. You could be more original than that. You can grab some old lady's purse and knock them down. And, but he pled guilty to that on August 3rd, 1987, was sentenced to serve two more years in the Department of Corrections. Well, guess what? He does some time, and he gets out. 
And on June 3rd, 1989, he's charged with driving without a license, hit and run driving, reckless operation, fleeing, felony theft, and resisting an officer. So he's, I mean, the dude can't stay out of jail a week. And he pled guilty to the reckless operation charge and was sentenced to another 90 days in the Department of Corrections. Okay, does his little stint. And on August the 14th, 1989, he was charged with attempted second-degree murder and two counts of felony theft. He again pled guilty to the felony theft. You know, you know they always drop these down. They charge them with the maximum, drop them down. They just want them off the street. But see, I, I don't know where the attempted murder went to, but he pled guilty to the felony theft and was sentenced to two more years in the Department of Corrections, right? But on September 21st, 1990, evidently he's out again, and guess what happens? He gets arrested again and is charged with escape and aggravated assault and was prosecuted finally as an adult for these charges. He pled guilty, and this time he gets sentenced to three years in the Department of Corrections, right? Um, that goes on to show he has almost no employment history, legitimate employment history, and he worked for a few months at a KSM crawfish plant in 1989, and he sometimes worked with his grandfather's janitorial business, right? His primary means of employment was he was a drug dealer. Uh, as an adult, Brown's rap sheet, which is included in these documents, y'all, lists numerous pages of arrest on various dates, which, which do not readily state the disposition which means sometimes he got out and maybe they didn't bring a trial, whatever. But at the penalty phase, the state introduced evidence of the defendant's adult convictions, including three cases in Baton Rouge Drug Court, all of which he was found guilty for, all right? And with, the, uh, with Brown's November 9th, 1999, guilty pleas to two counts of possession of marijuana with intent to distribute and one count of illegal carrying of weapons. And he received concurrent sentences of eight, nine, and ten years for each one of those charges, y'all, imprisonment and hard labor. Uh, well, evidently he got out again. Now, this whole thing isn't over with. The death penalty thing is going on, but in in 2000, my people in East Louisiana Parish brought him to trial for the, the crimes that he did in Clinton, all of them, and, and uh, which included the, uh, on the crimes against Mr. Ike Robertson. He was found guilty of attempted murder and armed robbery on April 14, 2000, relative to, the, uh, again, to Mr. Ike. The court sentenced him to two consecutive terms of 50 years in imprisonment and hard labor, right? The, you know, it just goes on and on, y'all. This dude is just so out the box. Um, and the trial on, uh, was th- for for Miss Miss Ann and Mr. William Gay um, was what three three and a half years after he murdered them and attacked Miss Dyke and Miss Myrtle and everything else he did. Uh, they shot that Mr. Thompson fellow when they were looking for the dope dealer, and you know this. They came back and, and they got him, and in the he was sentenced to death, and rightfully so, he was sentenced to death and sent up to Bloody Angola, and now 
again, to be sentenced to death, you have to have specific intent and aggravating circumstances. And the jury that returned the verdict of death on both counts, y'all, for um, both 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 of the gays that. Uh, they returned the verdict of death on both counts, agreeing that both were supported by the evidence, and they said Brown was engaged in the perpetration or attempted perpetration of a second-degree kidnapping, an aggravated arson, and an armed robbery, and he knowingly created a risk of death or great bodily harm to more than one person. And, um, so they sentenced him, and you know what? Fuck him. He deserves it. But now let me tell you a little bit more. Look, I could get gone on and on and on and on. Since he's been on death row, y'all, um, he has filed over 29 separate appeal things in this case, saying, they, oh, they got this wrong, they got that wrong, and this and this and this. Well, you know what? They've all been denied. And as far as I – well, I, actually, I, I looked it up because I, I want to know – He's still sitting on the row. You know what his problem is? Jeff Landry just got elected governor. And while um, Governor Edwards has been dodging the death penalty since he took office, and remember Gerald Borlaw out of Livingston Parish was the last person put to death in the state of Louisiana, the, the attorney general no longer has to fight the governor because the attorney general has become the governor. And Mr. Brown, I do not believe you go in the same place that Miss Ann and Mr. William went. And your time is coming, just like all the rest of y'all sitting up there. And y'all, these are the people that make the worst, not make, they do the worst murders in the world. It's just not somebody shooting somebody at a stoplight. They do bad shit. And you imagine if the gays were your family, right? You imagine Clinton was your little home community like it was mine, where everybody knows everybody. And and you just do. It's a small town, y'all. It doesn't even have a red light to this day. And, and, you know, they terrorized him. Uh, um, but they got him. And hell or jail, brown, eat a bag of dicks. I have a feeling you're about to get your issue. So with that, y'all, I'm going to conclude this story. I just wanted to tell it. And, you know, I split it in the middle for obvious reasons. But I love and appreciate each and every one of you. Thank you for listening and liking and sharing. You rock. Uh, go follow us on the Real Life Real Crime Community app. That's where everything is in one place. It's free. Download it from the App Store. It has chat groups and the merch store and all the episodes and everything else. And message me there if you have something to send to me. And I go there and I answer that one every morning. And I try to answer everybody individually. I answer it every morning before I go anywhere else. And um, Check out our TikTok, Real Life Real Crime. Check out our Instagram, all these social media platforms, all our Facebook pages. And uh, go listen to Real Life Real Crime daily. The, the That's the one that comes out on Mondays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Friday, y'all, with Jim Chapman and Mike Ago, or Agravino and, and I. And it's a totally different show than this one. 
This one will always drop on Tuesdays, okay? Now, more importantly, not more importantly, it's all very important, but swim. Someone Who Isn't Me, a podcast by Woody Overton. If you hadn't heard the first episode by now, you'll be hearing it this week. And it's not for the soft of heart uh, or the... Um, Whatever, and I'm going to say a lot of it's adult. How about that? Even though I'm telling, Swim is telling stories from the time they can remember as a kid to current day, and I'm not going to hold any punches. It's going to be fire, people. Go check it out and give us a like and a follow. Um, Patreon members, convicts, uh, Apple subscribers, love y'all. Thank you so much for your support. I hope you're enjoying your benefits and commercial-free episodes and everything else. And LOPA, Louisiana Organ Procurement Agency, y'all, be a hero. Sign up to be an organ donor. Go to LOPA.org, and you don't have to be from Louisiana. You can be a lifer from Detroit, Michigan. Go sign up. Be a hero. People are dying every day waiting on these organs, y'all. And I'm Woody Overton, your host of Real Life, Real Crime, the podcast. Until next time or ever, don't let me catch you down on Murder by You. Peace. Yeah, the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. You have a right to an attorney prior to or during any question. If you can't afford one, the court will appoint one for you. Do you understand your rights? When the wolf is at your door, you running so Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.